turn again for our 99th installment of Better Call Paul to Romans chapter 11 and also 2 Corinthians 5. Romans 11, Paul 99. I really appreciate, and I was thinking of this during the song, your faithfulness, all of you. And I understand it now. It's participation in the fidelity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the reason for, I know, your unrelenting attentiveness to the Word of God. That goes for the overflow rooms in Beantown, too, and the DVD groups are outposts. We want to remind you, too, that today not only did Pastor Brown lead us in prayer because it's from our hearts, of course, but also because our president mandated this day as a day of prayer. But we will pray for the recovery effort from our hearts as well as obedience to the powers that be, of course. Uh, We also have the opportunity, if you desire to give financially, we have the ways to do it out at the tape or the information table, whether it's to the... Salvation Army, or to the very excellent organization called Samaritan's Purse, led by Franklin Graham, which is very highly rated, and you can be sure that the money will get to the victims or the people who have underwent this disaster, and only a very small part goes to the administrative costs. So Samaritan's Purse, also our our faithful friends, Salvation Army, and for the secular-minded among you, the Red Cross. All right, Romans chapter 11, and I want to just really catch us up very quickly up to speed, starting with verse 1, and then I want to move into two things. One, the rectification of the ungodly and the reconciliation of the world. Those are the two themes that are sort of manifested in this passage, the rectification of the ungodly rooted all the way back in Romans 4, 5, and the reconciliation of the world. You're going to have to pay specific attention today because this is one of those fine-tuned teachings. There's a nuance here that is usually undiscovered, and I thank God through the Holy Spirit that he's revealing it. Romans 11:1. 1. I ask then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And I reply, most certainly not, for I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he previously chose. Or are you not aware of what the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? He says, Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I myself alone am remaining, and they are seeking to kill me too. But what was the divine response to him? I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there is a remnant at the present time chosen by grace. Now, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But he's saying there, grace would no longer be unconditional. 
it would be based upon works. It is not conditional, but can unconditional. What then? A new paragraph. Israel, that's by and large, did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The elect here is the remnant of Jewish Christians at the time in which Paul was writing. The rest were hardened. Just as it stands written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that do not see, and ears that do not hear, even to this day. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be continually bent over. This is a quote from David, the prophet. He was a prophet as well as a king. His greatest glory in his dying phase was that the Spirit of God spoke by his mouth. And that makes him a prophet. David was quoted before, and it's important because there's a remarkable continuity in Romans. I'm saying this in advance of perhaps teaching it someday, Romans as an exposition. David was quoted before in Romans 4, 6 through 8, from Psalm 32, 1 and 2, in the context of the rectification, which is a far better word than justification, which will become more and more apparent, the rectification of the ungodly without works. That's the context that David's quote comes from earlier, Romans 4, 6 through 8. This anticipates, then, the rectification, if you want justification, if you're still comfortable with that, not only of the Gentiles, but also of the Jews. God spoke using David's mouth. 2 Samuel 23, 2. David was a prophet. It's important to recognize that. And as such, he spoke along with all of the prophets whose mouth God spoke by, Acts 3, 21, of the apocatastasis panton, of a universal restoration. Now, I'm saying that because there was no prophet including David, who did not speak of that. When you get into some of the Psalms, you see that he's declaring it quite splendidly and quite elegantly and quite openly. And so as one of the prophets, he speaks of a universal restoration. That's the farthest reach of his message. And because of that, we should never assume that the hardening of Israel is permanent. If there's to be a universal restoration that includes hardened Israel which is presently hardened by a divine decree. And God decreed it with a salvific intent, with the intention of bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles and then the fullness of Israel, the totality of Israel. It's a wonderful plan of wisdom. Nobody would have ever thought of it. As the scripture said, who has known the mind of the Lord, his intention, his great intention, who's known it? Who could be his counselor? No one would have ever thought of the old rugged cross as a means of universal salvation. No one, only God, could have conceived such an idea. Only God could have executed such a means of salvation. So, it is important to recognize that the reference to David also connects with the reference to David in Acts 3 21, in which David is actually mentioned in the book of Acts 10 times. There's 10 references to David, so he's significant there. Now, if David spoke of the universal restoration with all the prophets 
And he did. Then his prediction about a part of Israel having a spirit of stupor and being bent over on the, under the yoke of slavery, which is really slavery to sin via the Torah, their own law. It was about a temporary situation, not an everlasting one. And so misleading interpretations say bent over forever here in David's words, bent over forever which is basically saying there's ne- they're never going to be restored. The word is not forever. It doesn't even have the word asionius to it. It's continually. That is a continual action through history until the time of their acceptance, which we're going to see shortly. And I'm just doing this by way of comment, and it's important that we understand this. Moreover, Paul says that David writes about the righteousness being given, that's God's act of rectification or justification. God's act of rectification, which is a setting right of something terribly wrong. God's act of rectification being given, for example, to those who, like Abraham, believe on the one who rectifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. Notice that. Kazaman thinks that's the whole heart and germ and kernel of Paul's gospel, the rectification or what he calls the justification of the ungodly. He's not far from wrong there, but I think there's something even deeper than that. But Paul says, once again, David writes about the righteousness of God or God's act of rectification being given to those who, like Abraham, are believing on the one who rectifies the ungodly. But this does not mean, as we've seen before in Romans 3, this does not mean exclusively those who believe in him. The emphasis is against works more than on faith. The emphasis is always on the faithfulness of Messiah in terms of salvation. And so this is not exclusively those who are presently believing that are received God's act of rectification. But in any case, we know this because of Romans 11.32, which is the, the arrow is pointing to true north. That's where we're going to end up on that mountain peak. And then we're going to dance around on top of the mountain in Romans 11.33 to 36 with Paul. And that's his victory speech. But Romans 11.32 says precisely that God has imprisoned everyone in disbelief that he may have mercy upon all. So it's actually in disbelief that God extends his mercy. And for us, he's extended his mercy toward us in our unbelief, and he has elicited faith. So we are like Abraham, blessed without works, and we have a rectification given to us, and in addition, the gift of faith. Again, this does not mean that God does not justify the ungodly who have not believed and have not, are not believing. In any case, though, and this is reconciliatory with people who think that faith is the condition. In any case, Israel will not continue in unbelief forever, nor will any Gentile continue in unbelief forever. Why? Well, you remember from Rev the book, every eye will see him. Every eye will see the pierced 
flesh of Yahweh in Yeshua. And every tongue will acknowledge that Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of the Father. It was his glory that raised the righteous one from death into life. The righteous one who died for the unjust and the ungodly, as 1 Peter 3.18 and Romans 5, 6, and 8 says. Like Thomas, whom we studied in John, going back further than Rev the book, the fourth G. Like Thomas in John 20, seeing they will believe, so they will not continue in their unbelief. Seeing they will believe. Now... A blessing is pronounced upon those who believe without seeing. That's you. That's many of you, if not all of you here today. But Thomas and all who believe through seeing will not be excluded from the reconciliation nor from the rectification that God wrought in Christ through Christ's fidelity. Now you believe. Jesus said he didn't say now you're not believing because you had to see first he said now you believe so there isn't a human being that's ever lived that will continue in unbelief forever and the Jews are not bent over forever under the yoke of slavery to Torah it's not their sins it's their piety and their pious works that have kept them from salvation to this point it's not their sins it's their pious works which Isaiah boldly says are filthy rags. They're works of righteousness or works to secure righteousness. So let's continue in Romans, 4, Romans 11, 11. This is the fourth rhetorical question. So I, Paul, say they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? He's actually rebuking people who say forever, including the English Standard Version, which I was a little surprised to see, the ESV, forever. In verse 10, Paul's actually rebuking and reproving that translation. He says, so I, Paul, say, it's almost like he say, we called him up and he said, what's this translation forever? Verse 11, apparently they, kept, they stopped climbing. They stopped and put their tent on this precipice and fell asleep. I, Paul, say, they have not tripped. The word here is ptio. In order to fall permanently, which is pipto, he uses two different words. He has, so I translate it this way. They have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? Of course not, he says. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation. I, I'll just stop right there for a minute. By their transgression, salvation. God's purpose is always salvific. His intention is always saving, delivering, preserving. He is creative in his justice. I was thinking this morning on the way in. Sometimes my heart is right into everything and I'm right with God while I'm driving. Sometimes my heart is not and I'm angry about something or other or things are trying to I'm trying to juggle things in my mind and I, I so you know what I prayed this morning I said renew in me a right spirit before I teach but I also prayed this create in me a clean heart now notice the word create God's justice is creative 
He actually creates a clean heart in the ungodly. He creates it. The creator creates his own justice and he gives righteousness in the sense that he rectifies what's gone wrong. He transforms the unclean by giving them a clean heart. He renews the spirit. As we said before in Ezekiel 26, make that Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, I will take out their stony heart. Great physician performs a heart transplant. I will take out their stony heart and place within them a new heart. Who can do that? Israel? Well, they're in a stupor. That means they're under anesthesia. If we are to save ourselves, then someone under anesthesia can perform their own heart transplant. I'm just using that as my own stupid analogy. Try to do analogies, but you can't come close to the biblical writers. They were, they were pretty awesome. So, on the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans to provoke Israel to jealousy. Not only has salvation come to the pagans, but that's supposed to be leverage or a fulcrum to turn Israel back. It's all salvific. Jesus' name is salvation. It means Yahoshua, Yahweh saves. He can do nothing else but save. He can do nothing else to the ungodly but rectify their horrible situation. His justice, as we asked at the beginning of Revelation and answered, is transformative, not retributive. That's a phenomenal concept. And you see, I'll never, someday, once I get all this established, I'll never have to teach it again because whatever I teach in the scripture, you'll have this vision and this basis in whatever we teach in the future or whatever is taught from this pulpit in the future. They have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? Of course not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans to provoke Israel to jealousy. Look at verse 12. But if their misstep, please notice the word misstep here. It's the word paraptoma, and that's going to be very important. I got this this morning, and I didn't finish my fine sanding until 931, so... I was rushing. Paraptoma, misstep. That goes back to Romans 5. Adam's misstep. Adam's misstep had worldwide implications. But so did Jesus Christ's obedience. Worldwide implications. It brings justifying life to all. Now, so there's a remarkable continuity. We've seen a continuity with Romans 4. Now we're seeing one in Romans 5. If their misstep is bringing riches to the world, and those are the riches that are in association with Messiah, Jesus. They're unsearchable riches, as we've seen in Ephesians 3.8. God is rich to all those who call upon him. If their misstep is bringing riches to the world, that's the riches of Christ among the Gentiles, and their defeat, I think there's an implication here of A.D. 70, their defeat by the Romans and their crushing defeat 
in A.D. 70, meant riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring them? The word here now is pleroma. You should be pretty familiar with this word, pleroma. Pleroma. And... We know that there's going to be a pleroma among the pagans, that all the nations will come in to the kingdom of God. We know that from Romans eleven twenty five, and then all Israel will be saved. Paul anticipates here an Israeli pleroma, the pleroma of Israel, the fullness, the totality of all Israel with no exceptions, all Israel. So if their misstep is bringing riches, the riches of Christ, to the pagans, how much more will their future eschatological fullness, their total salvation bring? How much, in other words, when Israel comes into its fullness, its riches from God overflow amazingly to the whole universe, to the whole of the human population. Speaking of teaching in this pulpit, there will be no Thursday message this week So there will be Wednesday. There will be a Wednesday meeting. And so double up on Wednesday then. Romans Romans will continue on future days. I'm intending, and pray for me with regard to this. I seriously mean it because I don't know where to go next with this. But whether I should, in fact, shift gears and go to a full exposure of Romans next. Or, or to stay with Better Call Paul, or to stay with Better Call Paul and do Romans under that larger umbrella. So you can see the horrible dilemma that I'm faced with an embarrassment of riches. Any way I go, you see, that's the discipline. I can go anywhere in the scripture and I start getting stuff bubbling up. Oh, that's awesome in Genesis 4 7. Or that's awesome in Psalm 2. But I have to focus back on Romans again because I could go off on a tangent forever. On any, any place you step into the word, he opens it. That's frustrating. But anyways, I'm being facetious. But now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, Paul says. I'm going to have a little talk with you. Like my dad. My mom's 93rd birthday is coming up on October 4th. And I have two feelings about that. I love my mom's birthday, but I have this terrible feeling every time her birthday comes. Because when I was 11, on her birthday, my father caught me smoking. And so, all during the dinner, I didn't enjoy the cake. I didn't enjoy the coffee. My father was silent at the table. And I was so stupid, I put my lucky strike out in the trash can. And it was smoking when he came home from... The post office is one of his three jobs. And so he was silent. And I was, I love coffee ice cream. Didn't like it that day. Love cake. Took maybe a nibble because I knew I was going to go into the cubby hole in my room and be talked to. And I was. My sister still recalls me rebounding across the walls. My father didn't push me. I was just running. My father never touched me. He didn't have to. All he had was the look, and I went, oh, man, I melted. But I know what he's talking about here when he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. 
in view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, he says, I am, and I'm going to use the word that's often used in translations because of the nuance of it, I am magnifying my ministry. That means I'm giving it a wider effect. My ministry is to the Gentiles, but I'm magnifying it in the sense I'm showing you that it has an effect that goes beyond the Gentiles to the Jews. So listen to what he says here. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. The Gentile Christians in Rome were about to get a little lecture from Paul to prevent their elective, elitist arrogance. Now, don't look at me that way. I quit smoking when I was 11 and didn't take it up again until I was 15. And then I quit again when I was 21. Then I've had a few cigars since then, but God has created in me new lungs as well as a new heart. So, I, I just know some of you might have been shocked. You were smoking at 11? Pretty regularly, yes. I knew them all. Raleigh's, Parliament's, Cool's. In fact, it was Raleigh's I was smoking when I shot eight windows out of our neighbor's garage at age 11. And I got caught for that, too. And so I'm just saying that to illustrate the point here that, and my grandfather replaced all the windows for me. And he said to my dad, boys will be boys. And my dad wasn't buying that one. But, uh, yeah, you have a cigarette dangling out of your mouth. you got a pellet gun with a pump, and you're going boom, boom. You think you're, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator 7 or something, you know. But it didn't work out that way. I'm, all, I'm saying all that to say why these memories flood in when I can't remember this morning at 8.30. Well, I don't know, but it must be age. But the, the, it just has the sense of when Paul says, now I'm talking to you Gentiles, it's time to talk. And then he says, in view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, that's by calling by Jesus Christ, I am magnifying. Doxazo is the word here. It means glorifying, but it means magnifying or expanding the effect of my ministry by doing this. Verse 14, if by so doing, see the ministry is expanded now, if by so doing I may provoke my flesh, now he's speaking about fellow Israelites, as he did in Romans 9.3. Paul's own brothers, his countrymen by physical descent, whom he regards as his own flesh. Paul never renounced his Jewishness. He did renounce the pious acts that he committed as a Jew and counted them as dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord. But he said, I'm an Israelite. And he says, now... I intend to provoke my flesh to jealousy and save some of them. Paul expected some of his fellow countrymen to be saved during this present evil age. And that's remarkable. He expected all of them to be saved at the end of this age. At what is known as the parousia, the appearing, when every eye sees him, every tongue acknowledges him every knee buckles to him not Baal every knee buckles to him you see 7,000 men that didn't bow their knee to Baal is a prolepsis and a preview and an anticipation of the whole of Israel bowing their knee to Yahweh in Yeshua they will see Yahweh with pierced flesh 
and they will say, Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father, the glory of God the Father that raised his son to life out of death and will raise us up. So this is where I want to hunker down here, and it's going to take more than today to do so. For you see, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, I mean, that's big talk there. If their rejection, the word is hey apabole here, hey apabole, I got time to write some of these things down today because you have to look at every word in the Greek to really get the nuance of this, but their rejection is hey, that's an article, and it's apobole, apobole, and that means to throw, apo, away, away, that means away, action away, and then plus the verb would be balo, where we get our word ball, to throw away. They're throwing away or they're casting aside. But listen carefully to this. If their rejection, we'll just call it hey apabole, their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? He anticipates a future acceptance of all of Israel. Acceptance here is another word which is extremely important. And it is, again, the article, hey, H-E, and then pros, P-R-O-S, lempsis, L, that's all one word, L-E-M-P-S-I-S, prolempsis. What will their acceptance be? Now, apabole, according to the Freiburg lexicon, strictly means being cast off. The United Bible Society Dictionary calls it loss. Lunita, who are always helpful, and I say to all pastors, you need a Lunita. They give nuances. They say apabole refers to the removal of someone from a particular association. means rejection or elimination. And then they talk about Romans 11.15 and its use there. Then Lunita the special lexicon with semantic origins says, in rendering this clause in Romans 11.15, it may be necessary to indicate more specifically the participants and implied relationships. For example, for if they're being rejected meant that people in general were reconciled to God. And I agree with them. There has to be an identification of the relationships Because there's something here about rejection and acceptance that has two meanings. It may not mean only Israel being rejected by God, but Israel's rejection of God's Messiah, which has happened. And that's why Israel was rejected, because Israel rejected herself in rejecting the true Israel, Jesus Christ. Israel rejected its own true nature when it rejected her Messiah. And so Israel, we could have sort of an objective genitive here where their rejection of Israel is God's rejection of Israel, or we could have a subjective one where it's Israel's rejection of God and his Messiah, or both, and I think both apply. Watch how this works out, and I'll tell you why. Second Corinthians, even though it's after Romans in the canon of Scripture, 
was most likely written before Romans, as First and Second Corinthians were. Paul did a lot of writing in a short span of time, and probably this was within the same year and a half or so of Romans, but before Romans. And so we have something that will be connection here. So let me say that again. Now, Liddell and Scott says apabole means a throwing away. Thayer means, says it means repudiation, to throw off or cast off from oneself, to repudiate. And that hey, prolepsis means an action receiving or an acceptance. And again, Lunita says it means the acceptance of someone into an association. And... So he also refers there, Lunita, to Romans eleven fifteen. That's two people, L-O-U-W dash N-I-D-A, two people, Lu and Nida. And so it is the rendering here, he says again, they say, it must be necessary to indicate clearly the participants involved. And I agree. The participants involved are God rejecting Israel, God accepting Israel. But the participants are also Israel rejecting Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Israel accepting Jesus Christ as their Messiah or receiving as many as received him to them. He gave the right to be the children of God. John 1 12 and it will be all of them. Now the Christian make that the complete for some reason every time I see the word see I think it's Christian but it's complete Jewish Bible by David Stern. Listen to this translation of Romans eleven fifteen. For if they're casting Yeshua aside, Israel's casting Yeshua aside, Jesus aside, means reconciliation for the world. What will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. It'll be the miracle of resurrection, of course. God's justice is creative. How does he accept Israel back? And how does Israel accept Christ, if not by bodily resurrection when they see him? So this is something I want to work out. This is not, this is, I didn't get this. There isn't a commentary that says what I'm telling you now. There isn't one. And so I'm, I'm giving you this from, I think, an insight. So I believe there is merit to the complete Jewish Bible translation because the rejection by Israel of Jesus was the rejection by Israel of true Israel. It really was the rejection of Israel's own true identity. And so this translation also has merit Secondly, because of the association of reconciliation of the world with 2 Corinthians 5.19. And I've asked you to turn there because it simply says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. World reconciliation is already something Paul has written about. But here he doesn't say in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that it was Israel's rejection that brought reconciliation to the world, but the crucifixion of Messiah in which the father was fully involved and not dissociated. He was fully involved. God gave his son and with his son himself. So he did suffer infinitely 
at and on the cross. As the spirit was also infinitely grieved when the son became sin. So this is what I want you to pay attention. This is where extra attentiveness is needed. So you might need to get the MP3 and listen to it double speed 13 times. Okay, 14 for those of you that don't like 13. I'm, again, I'm being facetious. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. This means that God was in Christ during the unspeakable ordeal of the cross. And so in the famous cry of dereliction, why have you forsaken me, my God, my God, does not mean that God the Father had left him alone. The Father was also suffering. And the Father was also in the throes of enduring the very wrath that would be meant for sin, the very consequences of evil experienced by himself. And Jesus as the man Christ Jesus was crying out because his perception was very real that God had forsaken him. He was identifying with a creation that assumes its creator is gone and has forsaken and abandoned them. There's no greater suffering that one can endure, humanly speaking, than that. So this also indicates the father's full involvement in the reconciliation of the world. What kind of love is this? And so that's why John says to have the life of the coming age is to know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent on divine mission, number one. I told Vicki that her two songs today were Divine Mission One, The Old Rugged Cross, Divine Mission Two, Breathe, on me, the Spirit breathes upon us. Two divine missions. This includes knowing the Father's full involvement. To know the Father and Jesus Christ, whom He sent, is the life of the coming age. Knowing the Father, though, has to mean knowing the Father's full involvement. At Calvary. His full involvement. In the resurrection. Of his son. From the dead. His full involvement. In your reconciliation. His full involvement in your. Rectification. The judge. Became the judged. For you. And for me. So then. To have the life of the coming age is to know the Father. But this includes knowing the Father's full involvement in our reconciliation as well as the sons whom he sent in divine mission one. This knowledge is brought about in us by the Spirit in divine mission two. This knowledge is brought about in us by the Spirit in divine mission two. The Spirit who was given to us the spirit who engendered faith in us, the spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts. So on the one hand, and this is the essence of the doctrine I wanted to hit you with today, and it is kind of a jolt. 
On the one hand, the reconciliation of the world was due to Israel's rejection or casting aside of Yeshua, God's Messiah. Israel's rejection of her, her Messiah meant the reconciliation of the world because it led to his crucifixion. And his crucifixion led to the reconciliation of the world. So what will their acceptance or receiving of him be, which is in the future and also going on in history, one by one here, one by one here and there, but life from the dead. So there has to be a double meaning here. And I think David Stern caught that with his complete Jewish Bible. At least he caught the other meaning. There has to be a double meaning here what the French call double entendre. Israel's rejection, on the one hand, is their temporary hardening by God. But on the other hand, it is Israel's rejection of Yeshua as her king. Remember, when Pilate presented Jesus, he said, here's your king. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. They chose the beast over the lamb. So it was their rejection. Their rejection isn't just God's rejection of them, which he's going to accept them later. It was their rejection of Christ because the reconciliation of the world didn't strictly come just because God rejected Israel. The reconciliation of the world came because Christ was crucified and God was in Christ. God was in, listen carefully, the rejected Christ reconciling the world to himself. So ultimately the reconciliation of the world doesn't come from Israel being rejected by God, but Christ being rejected and made a curse by God and made sin. So God was in Christ, not imputing the world's trespasses to them. So then on the one hand, it is their temporary hardening by God, and therefore his rejection of them temporarily. But on the other hand, it is Israel's rejection of Jesus as her king. Likewise, their acceptance, on the other hand, which is assured in the eschatological future, in Romans eleven twenty six, wholesale and complete, is also their acceptance or their receiving of Yeshua as Messiah and their acceptance by God into the kingdom of God, and therefore into their true identity as sons or as children of the living God. So this means not only that Israel after the flesh, toi loipoi, the hardened part, will be accepted, because the elect, ekloge, are already accepted by unconditional grace. This means, again, not only that Israel after the flesh will be accepted, because the elect's already been accepted in the beloved in Ephesians 1.6, but that this acceptance will occur as resurrection from the dead to life. A resurrection from the dead to life, I said, not to death or some second death. They're not raised to a second death. They're raised to life. Not to a second death, but 
to a judgment of acquittal, to a judgment of rectification, to a judgment of being set right. Romans 4, 5 and Romans 4, 25, because he was handed over, Christ was, paradidomi, handed over for our sins, but he was raised up for our justification. The justification of the nations, the justification of the Jews, Israel. And so this can be told in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 and following, and then Jeremiah 31, which we're going to get. These are lines I plan to follow in the near future. So it's not strictly that Israel's rejection means cosmic reconciliation. The reconciliation of the cosmos is there, not just mankind, but all of creation. It is not strictly speaking that Israel's rejection by God meant cosmic reconciliation. It is rather strictly that Israel's rejection of her Messiah meant reconciliation of the world, including Israel, because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself precisely during the hours of his crucifixion. The Father has not left me alone, Jesus said. Look it up. Say, where is it? I said, you look it up. Because I don't remember. (laughs) All right. Being honest. Now. So, humanly speaking, the crucifixion was due to hardened Israel's repudiation. Of Jesus. Jesus' crucifixion, therefore, conceived in this way is actually the rejection of true Israel by hardened Israel, and thus the rejection of hardened Israel by God. But that's only a temporary and partial historical situation. Consequently, Lunita's suggestion that it may be necessary to indicate. More specifically, the participants and the implied relationships is well taken in that it's necessary to indicate that Israel rejected her Messiah and as a result, the world was reconciled to God. Oh, man. So speaking of Jürgen Moltmann, and I wondered where this was. It roils around in my head. I know Ilaria Ramelli spoke about Jürgen Moltmann, and it was the last two pages where she spoke of Jürgen Moltmann, who I'd been spending years with. And of course, she spent 16 years studying the patristic authors, the so-called church fathers. This is what she writes on page 825 and 826, note 26, Alaria Ramelli writes, like that of the patristic authors I have studied, His universalism, that's Jürgen Moltmann, is based on Christ's redemptive power. Since Christ the judge is Christ crucified, divine justice cannot be avenging, but creative. Italic emphasis, creative. Create in me a clean heart. His justice is creative. So she goes on to say, God will create justice, both in italics, create justice, emphasis, making all things new, making just what is unjust, 
The judgment will be the universal revelation of Christ and the perfect accomplishment of his redemptive work. I'll say that again. The judgment will be the universal revelation of Christ and the perfect accomplishment of his redemptive work. There's the judgment. And then closes with this. In the depth of Christ's death, we find the certainty of the limitlessness of reconciliation and the true basis of universal apocatastasis, of universal salvation, and the new creation of the world for its becoming the eternal kingdom. What a way to end an 826-page book. So in closing, on the other hand, it can rightly be said that God's casting aside of hardened Israel means the reconciliation of the world, and Israel's eschatological acceptance by God means life from the dead. In other words, it's a spectacular miracle of divine omnipotence and grace, like the resurrection from the dead and the eventual apocatastasis, which ultimately the restoration of all things is a divine omnipotent miracle of divine love. Not only that, however, Israel's acceptance in toto, that is, in, its, in her totality over history, will occur at the bodily resurrection from the dead when all flesh together will experience the salvation of the Lord. Isaiah 40 and verse 5, quoted in Luke 3, 6. And Luke makes a strong universal case in the first early chapters, including the genealogy of Messiah, which is a universalistic declaration of eternal salvation for all in itself, which I will teach on someday. So how can people take a parable of the rich man in Hades and have that mean that, no, there isn't a universal restoration, there isn't a universal salvation, so there is, as the book says, hope beyond hell. In fact, that's not even the intention of Jesus Christ to demonstrate that there is such an after-death place as hell. So there's no contradiction in the word. So this action cannot be dissociated from Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can't just look at Israel's rejection and acceptance and then forget about Jesus Christ and him crucified because Paul said, I determined to know nothing about anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Jesus Christ and him crucified fits right here, though it's not on the overt surface. It's the mystery of Christ under the surface here. That's emerging now through the Holy Spirit just for you today. It's something God is doing not only here but elsewhere. God is pouring out his spirit in many different places and giving this insight to many different people, some of whom you would never expect, some of whom you'd be shocked by. Some of them, some people already have this insight but are afraid to say anything about it because it will alienate their atheistic friends or it will alienate their Muslim friends, or it will alienate their Hindu friends, or their Hare Krishna tambourine beater friends, because they've had this insight, but it takes a while to get the courage to say you've had it, or to even wrap your mind around it. So, 
Christ's crucifixion was the rejection of Israel and the rejection by Israel. But his resurrection from the dead was the acceptance of Israel. So, nor can the reconciliation of the world be dissociated from the Father or from the Holy Spirit either, who had and still have full involvement in the world's reconciliation. And indeed, not only the world's reconciliation, but the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth through the peace that was made through the blood of Christ's cross. Every word selected there is selected for a reason. The blood of Christ's cross. That which has offended so many church people today, even so-called conservative scholars, the term the blood of Christ, the sacrificial bloody death of Christ has offended many. But you miss out on what the atonement means if that offends you. The blood of Christ's cross is the peace that was made by the blood of Christ's cross is the reason for the reconciliation of all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And so, this peace is Christ himself. He embodies this peace. And this ties again into Colossians 1.20, the peace that was made through the blood of Christ's cross is what Kazaman calls peace. Kazaman defined peace as, quote, the all-embracing power of God to salvation. Peace, the all-embracing power of God to salvation. Makes a lot of sense when you hear Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. It's an all-embracing power to salvation. He said that in Romans 19.80, page 408. So this ties in elegantly again with Romans 4.25 to 5.1. I'm going to iron these out. The last things I'm saying I'm going to have to fan out on. But Romans 4.25 to 5.1 where the scripture says that Jesus was handed over for our sins and resurrected or raised from death into life for our justification. That means the making just of the unjust, the rectification of the ungodly, which includes Jews and Gentiles. Even Jews, through their pious works, are classed as ungodly, as pagans are classed as ungodly. So, it's a universal reconciliation. So that rectification of the totality of the Gentiles in all of Israel amounts to all of humanity in all of its times, in Romans 5.18. Having been justified then by the fidelity of Jesus, we have this peace with God. Having been justified, Romans 5.1, through faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we have this peace with God, this all-embracing salvation that is destined to embrace all of created reality. It's not only the peace of Christ, it is the peace that Jesus is in Ephesians 2.14. Jesus is our peace who has made the two one new man. Jews and Gentiles, one new man. So in any case, what I'm saying today, it's equally right to say that God has rejected the hardened part of Israel and will accept them in the future when the totality of the reconciled pagans comes in. And it's equally right to say the hardened part of Israel has rejected God's Messiah 
and will receive him in the eschatological future when they are raised from the dead to receive their judgment of rectification and their transformation by divine grace. By seeing things this way, we are not dissociated from the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus, who is the Lord of the living and the dead. The next line I intend to follow includes Romans 5. Because Romans eleven twelve to 15, there's an echo of Romans 5. The misstep, paraptoma, of hardened Israel in Romans eleven eleven to 12 is connected with Adam's misstep. Same word, paraptoma, Romans 5, 15, 5, 16, 17, and 18. In Romans 5, the misstep of Adam brought condemnation and death as a not permanent but temporary situation to all humankind and did not bring about a permanent situation because of the one act of righteousness by the one man, Jesus Christ, so that all humankind would receive life-giving rectification. So again, there is a splendid continuity of thought in Paul throughout the epistle to Romans. If I get it together enough, we might even do Romans. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We think again and echo Pastor Brown's prayer, which echoes Philippians 2.4, that we are not concerned with ourselves only, but with the concerns of others. And those others of us who are suffering as our countrymen in Texas and Louisiana, we pray for the recovery efforts to go on in earnest, for the preservation of life, for the deliverance and rescue of human and Animals also, for that's your concern as it was in Nineveh in Jonah chapter 4. And we thank you, Father, that your grace is being manifested now in the self-sacrificing love demonstrated by neighbors, by people in this region. And we pray that your many will be turned to your son and turned to the true gospel as a result. May something remarkably good come out of this remarkably disastrous situation for all concerned. And may this be to the glory of the Father who raised Jesus from the catastrophic death by crucifixion. In his name we pray.